Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Hello and welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM and 3cr.org.au. You can find us at greenleft.org.au. I'm going to be one of your presenters today. I'm Ari and I'm joined by... Yeah, I'm jo- you're joined by Jacob today. Um, probably some listeners probably hadn't um, heard from me from the for mm. the past two weeks. Um, and the reason why is because I... Got, um, I actually tested positive for COVID and had to spend a period of isolation um, as directed by the Department of Health. I was, um, I was fine, of course. It wasn't a big, wasn't that big of a deal getting COVID um, because I was fully vaccinated. Um, yeah. But it also, I guess, the lesson is here: um, you can still get COVID um, even when you're fully vaccinated. Um, you know, it's good. Um, vaccination does actually reduce transmission significantly and also reduces mm. the chance of you getting. So, you know, if you if you're one of those listeners who <laughs> um, who hasn't gotten a vaccination yet, you know, highly encourage you to get one if you're still on the fence and to get one in. It it, it will definitely mm. protect and save your life, as it probably did for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's worth also mentioning that I don't think any of your close contacts got it. Including me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I actually had spent yeah. I actually had spent a bit of time with Ari in like close proximity, sort of similar to what we've gone here, and he had uh, um, they had tested negative. So yeah. yeah. So it does drastically reduce uh, the spread for sure, and obviously symptoms. But... Well, but just um, before because of we've just been spending too much time talking about my my COVID <laughs> diagnosis, I think we one thing we just forgot to do mm. is. Just for our program, I'd like to acknowledge um, that today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. All right. So in terms of kind of news, um, I was hoping, Ari, um, you could maybe start off a bit of a discussion about Telling us about some what's what's been because I'm um, basically one of the things that has kind of appeared in the headlines in I guess the past few days mm. has been this whole kind of discussion about this so-called religious discrimination bill that is being pushed by the federal coalition government. I kind of want to yeah. yeah. What are sort of the latest updates on that? Yeah. Well, I've got an article by Tom Stainer for SBS News, which is just going over what's in the bill and some of the continued opposition to it. And one of the things that this article does make a point of is that a lot of the more controversial stuff has at least at least been toned down, if not removed. So, <clears throat> but the bill is, there is still some opposition to it, especially because it's only really, details have only just been revealed as of like a couple of days ago, as of Wednesday, roughly. So it's still... It's better than it could have been, but it's still uh, not ideal, of course. So, 
Um, the, I mean, the point here made in the article is that despite the insistence of several faith leaders that the laws are needed to increase protections for people of faith, the legislation continues to evoke concern from LGBTIQ plus queer advocates. Um, so like in general, what's in the bill? Uh, the bill states that the intention is to eliminate so far as possible discrimination against people on the <clears throat> grounds of their religious beliefs, which is pretty rich coming from the coalition after decades of demonizing Muslims in particular and people from other faith other than Christians and all that sort of stuff. But it do, the bill does include those people. So just to be clear, it does include, you know, people of faiths who aren't Christian, but it is still um, mostly being spearheaded by Morrison, who is, of course, a fanatical evangelical Christian. But the general change is um, that a moderately expressed religious view does not need to does, that does not incite hatred or violence would not constitute vilification, which is sort of basically a downgrading, so to speak, of the kind of regulations around kind of well religious expression or kind of hate speech is strong but you know the the regulations around what people are kind of allowed to say in terms of vilifying other groups basically so if the statement is made in good faith by written or spoken word or other communication other than physical contact and the person is of the belief that hang on this is a very weirdly worded paragraph that's apparently a quote straight from the thing Basically, if the statement's made in good faith and it doesn't involve physical contact and the person making it genuinely considers it to be in accordance with the doctrines, tenets, beliefs, or teachings of their religion, that it's... <clears throat> and it a reasonable person would not consider it to threaten, intimidate, harass, or vilify a certain group, that it's basically... that would be more allowed than it would be these days. Which kind of sounds reasonable but it's still um there like i said there is still objections to the bill though the particular one kind of that is a, a bit vague sure but the particular concerns is more around the rules for religious institutions so the bill retains a provision that would give religious institutions the right to preference the hiring of people aligned with their faith which you know, Christian schools being able to hire Christians kind of discriminate in their hiring practice toward Christians, which doesn't necessarily sound too unreasonable, but it also, <clears throat> pardon me, it also says that uh, it's, so it's not discrimination for a religious hospital, aged care facility, accommodation provider, or disability service provider to seek to preserve a religious ethos among its staff by making good faith, by making, sorry, faith-based decisions in relation to employment. Such conduct is that therefore not illegal, the bill reads. And that's one of the big sort of concerns for um, especially like queer advocates, but in general kind of anti-discrimination advocates and activists is that <clears throat> um, that sort of information, that sort of position in the bill kind of could leave uh, various religious institutions open to or give them the ability to discriminate against basically queer people or people of different faiths who already work for them or who might work for them. So even though it's been toned down somewhat, it's still, a lot of the concerns are still there, just not, maybe not as strong. Mm. And I think one thing that's kind of worth kind of pointing out, um, because um, 
even even though we probably didn't make as strong of kind of comments um, against the bill, um, like in terms of our presentation um, there, one of the things that we have to kind of acknowledge is that the bill has actually been in some sense watered down um, mm. from its kind of original kind of intention. Yeah. And because basically during 2017, when we had the big, massive kind of yes vote, um, the Morrison government was sort of trying to, you know, one way, there was sort of like, basically, there's kind of this implication that essentially, you know, the right has kind of tried to seize on this, but basically in the kind of growing context of growing mass support for LGBTI rights and um, and among other things, the coalition and um, the conservatives in the right wing have sort of tried to seize on this sort of thing of we have a right to be a bigot kind of thing. And yeah. of course, they part of these religious discrimination laws is in a sense trying to do that. But of course, because of, I think, and this is what, what's really important to note, mm. it's because of the, the fact that there's such broad mass support for LGBTI rights, which actually has been something that has been fought for through mass mobilizations, mm. you know, from the from the great yes um, result for the marriage equality ref, um not referendum, the what was it what was it called? Plebiscite. Uh, plebiscite. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what it was called. And yeah, all that kind of thing has actually created this sort of context where, you know, in a in a sense that there's actually limitations on how far the coalition government can go mm. with this religious discrimination bill. But I think, you know, it's still it's still going to be important to build a campaign mm. um, against this bill. And I think there are some ongoing sort of campaigns in Sydney and um, Brisbane that have been organised protests. I haven't seen anything in Melbourne yet um, in terms of commentary, I guess, on this bill. But yeah, it's exactly, I think it's, an, it's definitely like, I think, the fact that the bill has been watered down as it is, and also I think one of the funny one of the funnier comments that Morrison made um, when this bill was kind of presented in Parliament because I think there's there's currently some debate in Parliament going on around this bill right now, but I'm not sure what all the mm. conclusion is from coming out of that. But one of the one of the more amusing kind of things that um, Morrison kind of made um, when he was kind of presenting um, around this bill in Parliament was sort of saying, okay, we need this because something about cancel culture like mm, as yeah. if as if they like what kind of what what are they what do they what do the what does the right mean by you know what prominent religious figure has been <laughs> uh, a victim of cancel culture recently apart from a very obvious one which I'm probably not going to go into but you know I know <laughs> I know that there's some people who have um, who have gone and defended him um but of course that that's not like yeah basically that's a that, no no one that particular person is not being discriminated against because of their religious beliefs <laughs> and yeah. um the other the other kind of um the other kind of ca- ca- yeah i just can't think of any example of someone who has been deliberately cancelled for their religious mm. views and i don't think there's this thing where the left are going into churches or or something <laughs> looking for looking for some outrageous thing to be offended by because you know People um, within sort of lots of religions, there's all sorts of perspectives and opinions kind of put forward. Yeah, yeah. it's sort of like a bit of a sh- it was a bit of a strange comment from Morrison actually. I think because yeah. especially compared to countries like the United States, there's just not much of this sort of there's not even re- yeah in, in terms of compared to the United States, there's not much of a of a cultural war around religion necessarily mm. apart from what apart from Morrison <laughs> trying to insist yeah. there's some kind of um cultural war that doesn't actually exist yeah exactly it's like i mean it's a very popular conservative bugbear is this idea that like oh people aren't aligning exactly with my beliefs and they're not allowing me to continue oppressing everyone i used to be allowed to oppress 
So therefore I've been canceled and am now, in fact, a victim of oppression. But it is also to do with like Morrison's an evangelical Christian, right? And so that is kind of an inherent position to Christian like evangelicalism or whatever the term is for that is that basically kind of everybody who's not Christian is kind of an affront to Christians. And so that, you know, Christians are being canceled for, um, because not everybody's a Christian, <laughs> I guess it's kind of, it's a very weird sort of position, but that's as far as I could work out, that's basically the basis of why they think they're being canceled or oppressed is because not everybody fully agrees with them and people won't let them say whatever shit they want, basically. Hmm. And on this kind of, um, just one thing, I just want to give a bit of a plug to this, but um, coincidentally, um, we actually have just actually released um, something that is um, basically, if you go onto the greenleft.org.au website and you go under um, to the analysis um, section, we have actually produced um, a great... Um, <clears throat> We have produced um, a Green Left show on the Religious Discrimination Bill. Um, it's titled Green Left Show 19, Beat Back the Religious Bigotry Bill. And this is going to be um, this is going to be an inter- mm. this was an interview with Char- um, Charlie Murphy of Pride and Protest, um, basically having a bit of a, a broad kind of discussion about the bill. So yeah, just definitely recommend to any listeners um, who might be listening who want to probably go for a deeper kind of exploration of this topic. Um, talking to a left wing activist who's currently involved in campaigning against this bill, I definitely just w- um, recommend um, checking yeah checking out the the Green Left show we just used and we just released it kind of yesterday. So yeah, and that is also on YouTube for people who prefer to go through YouTube. You can find you know Green Left on YouTube, and that will be the most recently posted video. Yeah, and great. You can also go on YouTube. It's also going to be. It's also available on other podcast platforms like Podbean and so on. Now, I think we're we're getting ready. For, we're probably getting around time for our first interview for the program. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on eight five five AM, freecr.org.au. Or we'll be back with you shortly. Get your Radical Summer Attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976.
you know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh they should be entitled to full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And just this first interview we had lined up isn't um, necessarily picking up right now. We'll just give... One more try. Um, in the event that don't, we, we actually do have a pre-recording that we can kind of play for our listeners to um, have a bit of a listen to um, for our program. And so, yeah, I'll just quickly play another quick announcement and we'll go see if we can um, get our first guest online. All right. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. All right, listeners, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and um, we weren't able to get a our guest on the line. We called um, several times. We we're trying to actually get um, um, Bruni um, Karina, um, who's actually a former, um, who's actually he's actually a former presenter at FreeCR, longtime West Papua actress, and we're just going to have a bit of a discussion with him about um, the latest uh, about some of the latest films and. Um, in uh, West Papua, but unfortunately, that's not. I don't think we're likely to be able to get onto the interview at this point. So, um, we're, we're actually thinking we might, um, we could use probably the opportunity to play um, a bit of a pre-recording. We actually had just actually advertised um, this sort of special kind of Green Left show on um, the new Green Left show and beating back the religious bigotry bill. And given that, um, you know, this is a very recent topic, we had a kind of a good kind of discussion. It'll be interesting to kind of hear from an activist on this whole kind of development. So this this is a this is basically an interview um, that Green Left's Alex Bainbridge did with 
I think it was who was it again? I well, I think it, well, we'll find you'll get you'll get the sense once um once we get yeah. All right, so you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, oh, and hope you enjoy. Latest episode of the Green Left Show. Today we're going to be talking about the so-called Religious Discrimination Bill, or what should probably be more accurately called the Religious Bigotry Bill. Uh, my name's Alex Bainbridge and I'm from Green Left and I'd like to welcome you here today. Uh, I'd like to begin by just acknowledging that we are recording this show on stolen Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded and we pledge our ongoing solidarity with struggles for justice for Aboriginal people. I also just want to mention at the outset that if you like the work that we do, please become a Green Left supporter if you're not already. It makes a really big difference to the work that we uh, that we do. It's the best way to actually get the content that we produce as well as to, to show your support. Plans start from just five dollars a month and uh, and you can you know there's a link in the in the description for this uh, video or this podcast. Uh, also actually we do normally like to promote the, the Green F supporterships, but we also have a Green F Patreon uh, which you can support us that way as well. We haven't had that much um, activity yet on the Green F Patreon, but in recent times we've actually had a bit more interest. So you might be interested if you uh, use Patreon yourself, maybe you'd want to check us out and, and show us some love there. As I said, uh, today we're going to be uh, discussing this so-called religious discrimination bill. Uh, today when I'm recording this, Morrison has introduced the bill into Parliament earlier today. And he used these nice-sounding words to describe it. It is the product of a tolerant and mature society that understands the importance of faith and belief to a free society while not seeking to impose those beliefs or ever seek to injure others in the expression of those beliefs. It balances, as Australia always must, freedom with responsibility. By contrast, Monash law lecturer Liam Elphick uh, tweeted this comment. To the journos describing the latest religious discrimination bill as watered down, maybe check in with your local discrimination law expert before making such claims. In many ways, this version of the bill is worse and overrides existing protections to an even greater degree. Morrison's words in Parliament today echo what has become the mantra of coalition politicians that this legislation is a shield and not a sword. However, constitutional law professor at Monash University, uh, Luke Beck, uh, wrote this in the conversation. Current Attorney General Michaelia Cash's third draft is effectively in two parts. The first part is a legal shield, protecting people from being discriminated against on the basis of their religion or lack of religion. This isn't really controversial as it simply adds religious discrimination to the existing suite of federal race, sex, also covering LGBTQIA status, disability and age discrimination laws. All states and territories other than New South Wales and South Australia already have laws prohibiting religious discrimination. The second part of the bill, however, is more of a legal sword and is more controversial. Some of the controversial features of earlier drafts, such as the ability of healthcare providers to refuse to provide treatment, are gone. But the current draft still includes a range of provisions overriding federal, state and territory anti-discrimination laws to allow people to be discriminated against. Perhaps the most controversial aspect of the bill is the statement of belief provision. This provision overrides every federal, state and territory anti-discrimination law to make statements of belief immune from legal consequences under those laws. 
Statements of beliefs are things like comments from a boss to a female employee that, quote, women should not hold leadership positions, unquote, or comments from a doctor to a patient that, quote, disability is a punishment for sin, unquote. This is an extraordinary departure from standard practice in federal anti-discrimination law. Standard practice is to ensure state and territory laws are not overridden. In introducing le legislation, Morrison also said this. United in our love of our country and the freedoms that so many, so many have come here to enjoy, particularly to escape discrimination and persecution for their religious beliefs. They came here seeking that freedom. That freedom should be protected for them. This comment is incredibly galling when juxtaposed alongside the fact that there are countless thousands of refugees that have come to Australia, in many cases precisely because they were fleeing religious persecution, and they have been detained, and in fact some are still today, locked up in onshore or offshore detention centres, gulags, black sites, precisely because they were fleeing religious persecution and Australia has so far denied them the freedom that they were seeking. So today we're going to be talking with uh, Charlie Murphy from Pride in Protest and I began by asking Charlie to uh, just lay out what's in the bill. Yeah, so we know that there has been some fight between the moderates and the extremists um, within the party, but what the bill has ended up being, uh, even with it being watered down, um, is, is the phrase that's being used. There is still a whole bunch of stuff that is uh, really horrible for the queer community that is in this bill. Um, this includes um, basically the, the right for uh, discrimination around employment, um, the way that it's phrased is around, you know, people if they don't share the same faith. Um, we know that that is what that really implies um, is that minorities like queer people, um, are, their employment is threatened by this bill. Um, it also threatens to override anti-discrimination acts, um, which currently are put in, in different states. Um, so it's a way of, of attacking and diminishing those rights around anti-discrimination that had been put forward in states like Tasmania. Um, and finally, there's protections uh, around statements of belief. So um, th this is originally what they wanted was what they called the controversial Falau Clause, um, which apparently now it's watered down. But again, um, with having these um, these statement of belief, um, this statement of belief clause, um, it does put into question, you know, the right for someone to uh, make a bigoted comment and then not be able to uh, be uh, responsible or or, um, or you know prosecuted um, under an anti discrimination act. Um, this is clearly an attack on our community. It's clearly an attack on, on the queer community. Um, and we need to see, see this bill struck down in its entirety. Also, can you explain why you are opposed to the bill? Really, we have to be honest about why this bill has come up and why it is the Liberal National Party that is putting up this bill. This bill has been promised to the religious right of this country ever since marriage equality was passed. Um, we know that it always has been um, a, a form of backlash because queer people demanded and won their rights, uh, even though it was through the incredibly painful process of the plebiscite. Um, we know that at its base, um, what this is not about is about the freedom for religious people. 
um, to express their faith. It absolutely is not the right for religious minorities to express their faith. It is backlash against the queer community because we push for and won our rights under marriage equality. The fact that federal labour um, is basically coming to this table and saying that they are seeking, they can potentially seek bipartisan support on the bill if it goes to inquiry, is federal labour stopping to their right. It is opportunistically going to the right instead of actually protecting the rights of queer people. You know, federal labour um, and, and anyone else who votes on this bill who is left-wing needs to side with the queer community and not side with the Liberal Party. Can you expand on why the religious right are so worried about the marriage equality victory a few years ago and also what this means in this legislation? Yeah, look, I think that the religious right uh, are so frustrated with the win for marriage equality because uh, at the end of the day, it's them losing losing the, the, the moral majority um, on what their series of, of beliefs are. And I think it's particularly insidious um, that what's being put forward in this bill uh, is so heavily around the material rights of queer people. It's about the rights of queer people at work. It's about their right to not be discriminated on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, if queer people can't work, they can't make a living, that is one of the most disempowering things um, that can happen to our community. Um, to have us economically deprived like that um, is a, a huge material power um, that the religious right can hold over queer people by the sheer fact of the sectors um, and areas of our economy um, in which they have dominance in terms of schools or, you know, private um, aged care facilities or private health care. You know, all of these things are the places in which the religious right have their true economic power and the way that they want to exercise it um, in, in the harshest way um, is, by, is, is by inflicting um, their moral beliefs uh, onto, on, onto all people um, and therefore deprive uh, queer people um, of their right to live, to work, to have a job, to put food on their table. Um, it, that is the reason why we have to we have to fight against it. You know, it's not just fighting against um, what what a reactionary religious uh, rights opinion of our community is morally, um, but it's also about the need to actually break up the economic power that they hold over our society. The fact that these religious rights are not just religious fanatics, and they are fanatics, um, but they are also the business owners, the CEOs, the ruling class who through privatisation and holding on to these private industries are essentially controlling the lives, the material lives of people having that power over them, um, which is why we don't only need to defeat the bill, um, but we actually need to defeat that economic power that they hold as bosses uh, over us in society. I also asked Charlie to respond to this comment by Morrison that the legislation is a shield and not a sword. Yeah, look, Morrison using the phrase, the phrase that it's a, it's a shield, not a sword. Um, and I've also uh, seen this language also um, be picked up on the left. Um, well, not <laughs> the left. Um, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's absolutely bullshit. Um, and I think it's, it, it is particularly insidious 
um, as well, um, the way that, um, lay, that, that there have been some pockets um, of, of, the pro of, of progressives um, and progressive communities um, actually questioning, you know, maybe actually this bill is going to be um, good for, for religious minorities. You know, actually like the, the, the good thing about this bill um, is that it'll be good for, for Muslims or, or, or Jewish, Jewish people. That is, that is just simply not true. And that is not the reason why Morrison is putting this up. They are not, that is not the people that he is appealing to. It's not the leaders of the church that he's appealing to. Um, that's the, you know, it, it, it is for the religious right and the ruling class, because if it didn't have to do with the right of an employer to sack an employee, how is that, how is that a shield instead of a sword? How is the right to fire someone a, a, a protection for a person of faith? They are the person that is determining the material reality of someone's lives you know, to end their, end their job, um, to stop them from being able to put food on the table. Now, I don't know about you, but if my employer turned around tomorrow and said, actually, surely because of your identity and my religious beliefs, um, you're, not, you're, you're going to be out on your ass and not have a job, I would feel like someone had stabbed me with a sword. I, didn't, I wouldn't think that person was protecting themselves with a shield, that's for sure. And so what would genuine religious freedom look like? Yeah, genuine religious, genuine, genuine religious freedom would be the right for people to practice their, uh, relig their religion um, and their spirituality um, in a way that does not, does not allow them to give power over other people, whether it be around their material lives or, or, or in, their, in, in their statements. You know, religious freedoms is not the freedom to be a bigot. And we absolutely cannot confuse those two. And the fact that conversations around freedom of speech um, and, and anti-discrimination is mixed in with the right for a business owner to fire an employee um, is just absolutely ridiculous. And it is such an insidious way that the word freedom is used by the right wing in this country. Freedom for anyone is the freedom to live their life. It is the freedom for them to get by day to day with what they need. It's freedom for them to provide for their family, no matter what that family looks like, for them to be in a community, to have material safety. That is a freedom that everyone shares, whether they are a religious person or not. You know, we can, we can go around and saying what, what we believe, share our ideas, for people's faith to be shared um, and so it should and for people to lead fulfilling spiritual and moral lives that freedom is not the freedom to go out and vilify someone for their sexual identity or their gender identity it is not the freedom to take away their material safety within society before we go i must ask can you please tell us what is pride in protest and what activities are you involved in yeah, so Pride in Protest is a, a queer liberation collective. Um, we hold a number of rallies and marches throughout the year, including uh, this year during Mardi Gras on the day of day of Mardi Gras on the street, um, which had several thousand people and one was one of the largest uh, queer rights demonstrations since marriage equality. Um, we also run for the Mardi Gras board. So I am a um, outgoing Mardi Gras board director 
um, we have our lead candidate, Wei Tai Haynes, um, who will be taking over. We fight for a Mardi Gras um, that is for the queer community, by the queer community, not under the control of um, corporate power um, and that doesn't um, put up with um, and, and, and will not accept the um, acceptance of police um, or, or liberals um, into the space of Mardi Gras because of the way that they attack our community. Yeah, I think that it is so important that this bill is struck down and we all must unite really clearly in saying that we want to kill the bill. At the same time, you know, we, while we are killing this bill, we have to be pushing forward um, to, to win more rights, to, to, to win a better place and liberation within our society. Um, not only do we need to, to, to kill these bills, we need to kill the Mark Latham bills and the attacks on trans kids um, and education, but we need to win back things like safe schools. We need to have those programs to make sure that trans kids um, and queer kids in schools um, are, are properly protected um, and feel safe to be who they are in education. We need to fight for workers' rights of trans people in society. We need to win things like gender transition leave. We need to win um, transition surgeries to be on Medicare so that trans people don't have to pay thousands of thousands of dollars to have life-saving surgery. Um, we need to have sex workers into anti-discrimination so that people who are both queer and sex workers are also protected in their work. There are so many fights that are in front of us um, that isn't just beating back the bigots, but actually winning a world for our community. And finally, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Yeah, I just want to say that we have a, um, we have a street protest again um, for this Mardi Gras um, in 2022. Um, that's on the 5th of March. That's the day of Mardi Gras. That's going to be a, a staunch, incredible grassroots protest that is on the ground on Oxford Street, um, despite the fact that, you know, the corporate Mardi Gras have decided to um, privatise their parade and put it into the SCG. We will be on the streets where Mardi Gras deserves to be. We will be fighting to kill this bill. Um, we'll be fighting for the rights of, of, of all queer people across this country um, to, to be loud and proud and say, actually, we're here to celebrate our Pride in Mardi Gras, but we're also here to fight for our rights. Thanks again to Charlie Murphy from Pride in Protest for joining us uh, today. Thanks also to everyone who's been watching or listening to this uh, video or podcast. We do really appreciate it. If you can support our work by becoming a GreenLeft supporter, if you're not already, it'll make a really big difference. It's the best way that you can support our work. But even if you can't afford or if you're already a supporter, you can show us a bit of support simply by giving a thumbs up to this video or this podcast. Please share the Green Left show with your friends and workmates, neighbours, whoever might be interested. We do want to build the audience for this show. And until next time, we'll see you again. All right. So you're just listening to um, the Green Left um, show, um, Beat Back the Religious Bigotry Bill. And you can watch a video of that if you go on to the Green Left um, YouTube page. Now, I'm going to give, I'm probably going to give a, quick, a bit of a quick kind of news up, um, story that will probably lead into, naturally kind of lead into sort of the next kind of interview that we're going to be doing. But the first thing I just want to do is I'll just go play a quick announcement and then we'll go move on to the next part of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. 
On Thursday, December the 2nd, join the Rally for All Life and Habitat, led by Blinky the Spectacular Smoking Koala. Bring your banner for this family-friendly, non-arrestable action, co-hosted by Extinction Rebellion and community groups. Business as usual logs state forests, driving extinction and climate collapse. Healthy ecosystems are vital for sustaining all life, so we demand urgent, strong forest protection now. See you 5.30pm, Thursday 2nd of December at Melbourne Museum. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Now, this is just a bit of a. It's actually this is this this announces a bit of a shock to me, and it kind of um it actually actually leads into um the next interview we're going to be doing, which is we're going to be doing an interview with um Socialist Alliance candidate for the local council elections in New South Wales um about the case um for deamalgamation now um of deamalgamation of local councils. Now, this just relates um to a kind of interesting kind of story that has just actually been revealed in um in 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 the age but essentially the Moreland City Council in Melbourne's north is going to be actually committing to changing its name after being aware that the title came from a Jamaican sugar plantation that used slave labor now this proposal um you know likely to be voted on a council meeting in December was briefed to councillors on Tuesday evening by New Greens mayor Mike Riley and the council's chief executive and of course a lot of the 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 pair um this kind of process involved you know meeting with um indigenous elders and former federal MP Phil Clary last link last week who briefed them on the links and of course you know they're kind of there's a bit of a shock um that you know more than this kind of named after a slave estate um the history um behind the name of this area is painful uncomfortable and very wrong and it needs to be addressed and, and, you know, one of the sort of funny, one of the kind of funny things about this is as someone who's like a long time kind of resident of this particular, of this particular local council area, Moreland actually tends to be kind of, has this sort of positive association um, and it's developed a lot of kind of progressive cred over the year. And that's because the, 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 the city, the local council area includes suburbs such as Brunswick and Coburg, um, which are kind of considered some of the more progressive left-wing areas in the city of Melbourne. So, yeah, this is actually a bit, yeah, this is quite interesting. And I think one of the sort of actually kind of fascinating things is really, probably really the origins of the name of Moreland was really kind of, was really assigned to the council in 1994, which was actually part of the Kennett government's sort of amalgamation of all the kind of local councils. And because we're going to be talking about this issue with um, Pip Kinman um, in an interview, one of the kind of histories, what what we kind of mean by amalgamation is that previously a lot of local councils, so looking at, looking at the city of Moreland, for example, we used to be deal, we used to deal with much smaller councils than what we kind of used to. So essentially, in the good old days, um, there was no there was no Moreland City Council. There was only there was actually a Brunswick Council, and then there was also a Coburg Council, and etc. So a lot of the councils were actually based on the particular kind of suburbs. And of course, back then, people there was actually kind of like a lot of um, 
there will probably there's a bit of nostalgia for kind of that era because basically it actually meant that local councils were actually the the local councillors themselves who were elected were much more accountable to the kind of local community and they were much more accessible in terms of kind of democratic uh, participation of the local council and essentially amalgamation was essentially just a way of actually in a sense can be you know amalgamation was in a sense almost bureaucratizing a lot of the councils because it's actually almost like it's it's kind of like it's almost like you could kind of like conceptualize this as the the the, the tyranny of big government in some sense um turning local small councils into big sort of corporations etc that, that that's in some sense what what kind of amalgamation kind of means so we're going to actually going to be having a bit of a discussion with um social science candidate um councillor uh, about this um about the case for deamalgamation in uh, in the case of the local Sydney um, wet, inner West Council. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just quickly um, play a quick announcement and we'll be starting the interview shortly. You're listening to Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Uh, all right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for our um, second interview for the program, um, we're very happy to introduce um, Pip Hinman, who is actually the Socialist Alliance Council candidate um, for the city, for the city, for the Inner West Council in New South Wales. Now, New South Wales is going to be having council elections it's, um, on December, I think it's December the 4th or one of the one of the weekend, um, the, well, the first um, Saturday of December, and um, essentially um, that that council election has actually been very long delayed. It's been actually delayed, I think, a number of times because of um, the COVID nineteen pandemic. But the vote is finally going to be um, going to kind of head. And I guess one of the things that's I guess been occurring kind of in the background is um, we we're just talking about this in the context of the city of Moreland um, name change, but one of the kind of re- um, big sort of political issues um, that's occurring in the background for these um, local council elections is this whole issue of de-amalgamation or amalgamation of local councils. There's essentially going to be a referendum on de-amalgamation. Now, as we've sort of been spoken, speaking about kind of before, um, you know, amalgamation of kind of councils has been kind of like a recurring sort of trend. It's basically almost been a way of you know, leading to kind of higher costs, worse services, and also less community say over local council. And as we were sort of speaking about in the case of Melbourne, um, all the kind of Melbourne councils um, are actually a product of amalgamation. Um, and of course, a lot of those amalgamations were implemented by the Kennett government in um, not, um, in 1994. So yeah, good morning, Pip. 
Oh, hi, Jacob. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, so I guess um, just getting, I guess the kind of first kind of question, um, I guess because one of the things, obviously, that's, um, I just sort of introduced, I guess, this kind of whole kind of background um, to the kind of issue of de-amalgamation and amalgamation, I guess, of local councils. And I guess you, to start, I guess, you, you're running, I guess, as a Socialist Alliance candidate for this upcoming council elections. And there's this referendum on de-amalgamating the local council with an ongoing kind of campaign demanding a yes vote um, for de-amalgamating the council. And I guess this is, you're supporting this camp, um, the campaign. And I guess, what can you tell us about why you are for de-amalgamating um, the council? Um, and, okay. Yeah. Excuse me. Yes. Um, thanks for having me on the program. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Gadigal Wangle Land in um, New South Wales, of the Eora Nation. Um, yeah, look, just going back a little bit uh, to explain the council, three councils in the inner west were mer- forcibly merged by the Baird coalition government in 2016. And this was after a, quite a big community campaign uh, across New South Wales to say no to de-forced amalgamations because communities knew that would mean less democracy, less rights, uh, less services. Um, and the consultation that was had was you know, quite extensive, but turned out to be completely fake because the decision had been made. <clears throat> so the councils um, in uh, the forcibly amalgamated council where I'm running, the inner west, is, is Leichhardt, Ashfield and Marrickville. And um, <clears throat> we've had five year, four years of this experiment and uh, really hasn't... It hasn't uh, lived up to its... Um, uh, well, lived up to the, the claims of, of the supporters, which really were the state government, um, because actually the Labor Party, the Greens, Independents, Socialists were all against the forced merger. Um, so I, together with Independent councillors uh, and Greens councillors, um, uh, helped um, initiate an opportunity for residents to have a say at the council elections by having a referendum, it's called, or a non-binding ballot. Um, so after a, a lot of toing and froing, this uh, ballot will go, everyone can vote in this ballot, which is the question is, do you want to return to the three former councils, yes or no? Um, and that will give the community a direct say in really what what's happened over the last uh, four years in the inner west. Uh, so part of um, the, our campaign in one of the wards in the inner west, I'm running in Darman Ward, has been really this residence to de-amalgamate campaign. Um, and I guess, um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I stand for, uh, you know, real action on climate, uh, for housing action, for active transport, um, for no outsourcing of council services. All those things, um, but I guess this campaign has the, is the one that's really taken off because people feel so aggrieved by the forced merger and then the deterioration of services, and on top of that, lack of democracy, rate hikes, and the rest of it. Yeah, you sort of um, alluded to guess some of those kind of issues, and I guess. What are, um, in, I guess more kind of concretely, I guess, what have been some of the trends with some of these kind of amalgamation of local councils? Because in general, this is actually a universal issue in terms of the history, in terms of the history in of politics in Australia. I mean, just um, re, because really, um, the local, in fact, the local council I'm part of here in, in Melbourne, um, Moreland is in a sense actually a product of 
of amalgamation. And of course, there's quite even from people you know who live um, who have who lived through the times before the council was a was kind of um, amalgamated. There's actually quite a lot of kind of nostalgia for the kind of old period before the council was kind of amalgamated. And I guess what are some of the kind of recurring sort of issues and trends with amalgamations of local councils? Um, well, we're, we're actually, that, that argument about your own interviews because of nostalgic reasons was actually uh, <laughs> inaccurate. Um, you know, nostalgia isn't, isn't it at all. Um, I mean, because in many ways the inner west of, of, in Sydney is, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a vibrant, diverse set of communities that get along extremely well um, very energised, very lo- local activist resident groups, um, and um, you know, uh, uh, it's it's not about sort of wanting to. In my view, uh, my my concern about needing to de amalgamate's got nothing to do with sort of trying to put up boundaries between communities. Um, and that one of the arguments being raised against uh, the demerger. And uh, it's coming from the Labor Party and the Liberal Party councillors. Is that it's really just for nostalgic reasons. So, um, and it did, and the old councils didn't work well anyway. So, um, the argument, in, in, in effect, the Labor and Liberal councillors are putting forward the arguments of the state coalition government, which is that um, you know bigger is better. Essentially, um, you get better services, you get better hearing with. Um, state government, um, but none of these things have come to pass. So, you know, um, from having a say over development applications, really having a say rather than um, be fobbed off um, and, and council having its own little advisory committee, which is made up of independent experts that don't live in the area that want the development to go ahead, to just even basic things like being able to speak at a council meeting. You know, it's just become... Or even ringing up the council and finding somebody at the other end of the phone, just not possible. Um, I mean, there's been, you know, there there are many other issues as well, but um, the council numbers have been reduced from, you know, 30-something down to 15. Um, Councillors are expected to know intimately what's happening in the streets at, you know, 20 kilometres away when, you know... They would really wouldn't know how to assess whether a bicycle path goes one way or the other way. So I think, you know, people have had the experience now and they can see that it's not working for them. It's working for the developers um, because everything has been streamlined and at the same time, state government has taken away powers from council to um, assess and approve developments. Um, it's way more difficult for residents to get involved. Um, um, and... Uh, you know, there's been also a spate of um, outsourcing of council services, which, of course, makes the services more expensive. Um, at the beginning of COVID, a number of, of, of the council-managed, uh, sorry, uh, in corporatized managed council resources like pools, you know, young people particularly were just stood down without pay. So there was no ability for them, for councillors, to sort of step in and say, no, you can't do this, it's just not fair. Um, So, yes, I think on many levels, um, particularly resident involvement in shaping decisions, um, that is 
to me, in my mind, that is the critical element in all of this. Um, no one counsellor or group of counsellors, even with the best um, program in the world, can deliver unless communities, residents are really involved. Because, as you know, uh, here and also in Victoria, the state government really wants to eliminate council. Well, under Kenneth, at least, that's what seemed to be the trend. Here, the state government really wants to get rid of councils if they possibly could. Um, so they're busy trying to take as many powers off or reduce the amount of funding going to council. So in that sense, you know, the more resident power and action at a local grassroots level, the more, the better the outcome for us. Hmm. Well, um, just to clarify, just one comment Connick just made, because um, it might have been just misinterpreted. Um, in terms of like just what I mentioned about the que- about this sort of thing about nostalgia for um, the period of um, Moreland Council before it was amalgamated, I didn't really necessarily refer to that as like a nostalgia of all oh, the good old days. There's actually a political kind of um, assessment in terms of that period from that comes from that nostalgia. And of course, the argument is actually a lot. There's actually a lot of um, history in terms of that um, before, prior to when the Moreland Council was amalgamated, where, you know, um, things actually were better in terms of, like, all the issues that you mentioned in terms of direct democracy and access to the councillors and kind of so on. So, So, yeah, the actual actual political argument in terms of the history is that the amalgamation of councils in Melbourne has led to worse um, um, community say and and stuff. So, yeah. Now, yes, I just picked up on it because it's one of the arguments being trotted out now by, um, ironically, the Labor councillors here. I should just tell you this too. Um, Labor and Liberal councillors have been the, <coughs> the two sets of councillors that didn't one didn't want residents to have a, even have a say, so they tried to scuttle that vote. When the vote got up in council in May, then they re- tried to rescind it unsuccessfully. So they didn't even want residents to have a say. Meanwhile... The shadow, the opposition, uh, Labor, um, Labor's in opposition here, has a has a policy of uh, agreeing to allow residents to have a say. So, in a sense, well, quite clearly, the Labor councillors here, and actually, it's repeated by the candidate Labor councillors or the candidate Labor people, uh, they don't agree with the demerger. So. It uh, has been a bit a big pushback since the residents for deamalgamation got going, um, and that's a group that was formed by both Independent and Greens and ourselves, the Socialists, Socialist Alliance, uh, and just others who want the community to have a say. So, since since the prospect of having a vote has got on to the table and is on the table. Uh, this residence group has been working very hard to get the message out because to get the message out that we even have an opportunity to vote because even a week out from the elections, we're now in pre-poll, so the election day is December 4, many people still don't know that there will be another voting slip and they can, on, on this question of demerger and uh, they don't know necessarily the arguments and that is actually the result of council procrastinating and avoiding putting out a clear yes and no case to all residents, um, which could have been done. We could have had a really interesting discussion, but actually it's happening in another way, and that's been driven and led by this group, Residents for Deamalgamation. 
Hmm. Okay, so we're just, I'm running a bit out of time um, in terms of the interview, but I, I have one last kind of concluding question, um, and this is sort of one of the kind of planned questions, but I'm just basically kind of combining them. But basically, the, I want to kind of bring it back uh, to the fact that you're, you're running as a kind of socialist alliance kind of candidate, and of course, obviously there's this kind of history of, um, you know, right now there's clearly a current trend that you've just um, brought up that the state government wants to kind of kill local councils. And in fact, I'm pretty sure and there's some there's some parts of Australia that don't even have local councils. Um, I think Canberra might have been one of them, but I mean, that might have been a um, different story. Um, but I guess why is it, guess, important, I guess, for, um, in terms of your final comments, why is it, guess, it is important, you know, as a socialist to kind of support local community campaigns and, I guess, engage with local council, like you're kind of clearing, kind of doing? Like, what is kind of the perspective that you want to kind of bring there? Well, I think as, in, as as there's increasing alienation from from politics in general, um, you can see aspects of that in some of the anti-vax um, rallies that, that have been taking place. Um, but general alienation from uh, the major parties' dissatisfaction, you know, people do look to local government as as the place where they can go to to to, to be heard, uh, to get access to a person, to sit down and speak to a person. Uh, and um, this is very important for us. Um, you know, grassroots. Uh, this sort of grassroots approach is more than it's, it's. It's very real for people that just simply don't have any other avenue um, for which to express their grievances or even seek solutions or put forward solutions. And you'd have to say the inner Western Sydney is one of the most energised, engaged, conscious communities. Uh, you know, um, just because um, there has been, you can see a lot of climate action groups. You can see a lot of housing affordability groups. You can there was a big campaign against a tollway here called West Connects. Um, uh, you know, lots of volunteers at local uh, PNCs. You can see a very energised, informed, engaged community. But all that is being you know ignored essentially by council. That could be working more proactively, really working with people to get to arrive at solutions. I mean, council has a big role to play, in my view, on climate and, and sustainability and real climate action. And, that, of course, individual councils have to join together to push the state government to, to act on these things. That is where you can harness resident power and work with residents. I mean, as I said before, no one councillor or group of councillors will be able to do it. I don't believe in this whole delivery idea. I think Sue Bolton in Melbourne, um, Moreland there, has shown quite clearly that working with residents what delivers the results. And in the process of doing that, <clears throat> people become more optimistic about changing more things. <clears throat> so that, that is, of course, a very important part of our whole approach. All right. Well, thank you very much um, for that, um, Pip. Um, yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to conclude this interview. But yes, all best of luck with your... Um, campaign. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of hard work because um, it's like two weeks of pre-polling, I think. And two weeks, yeah, we're at the last. No, we're not at the last. we the first five days of two weeks of pre-polling. It's pouring rain for two weeks. Oh yeah, I've 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 had that experience before. Actually, doing pre-polling for a state election in November. Yeah, yeah massive amounts of rain. So yeah. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you very much, Pip. Okay. Okay. okay bye bye. Bye.
All right. You're, we're just um, we're just having a bit of a discussion with Pip Hinman um, about um, who is actually a local council candidate for the New South Wales um, local council elections, and we're just having a bit of a kind of discussion about this kind of whole issue of de-amalgamation and amalgamation of councils because yeah, it's, this has actually been kind of an ongoing sort of long-term kind of trend um, within Australian politics, where you know essentially. Amalgamation of councils has actually just meant almost been, in a sense, almost like privatisation by self. Um, in some sense, it's been a way for governments to actually cr- um, make um, local councils worse, less democratically accountable, and so on. Now, just play. I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio. You know, there's people like you said have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave, or what's whatsoever. Especially you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment. They're sitting home. You know, people want full time employment, and they should they should be entitled to full time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector, and all the problems that are facing people now, and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Now, just to give a bit of announcement for some upcoming kind of events, um, I'd like to note um, that on November 27th and November 28th and December 4th and the 15th, you can shook all the details for this um, on the Green Left website, but there is um, there is actually been an online conference being organised by the Socialist Party of Malaysia, um, which has been supported by all sorts of different socialist groups on the Asia Pacific, including um, Socialist Alliance Women Australia. And they're, they're going to be basically having an online conference from November 27th to 28th, 4th to the 5th of December. It's, it's free. Um, it's titled Overcoming the Multiple Crises of Capitalism. And the, the conference kind of starts at 1pm kind of every day um, because that kind of fits with the kind of Malaysian kind of time zone. And yeah, you can look up, up, up the agenda and stuff by going onto the greenleft.org.a website and checking the um, the, the events um, um, checking on the, on the agenda. Now, some other thing, um, event, important kind of events to announce. There's um, going to be a rally against the coup in Sudan at 3pm at the State Library in the city. Um, there's going to be the Green Left Performance Night at 7pm at the MUA, 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. And then on Sunday, November the 28th, there's going to be the Run for Palestine at 10am at the Tantrax, Tom's Block, um, Liftingo Avenue and King's Domain. There's going to be also a picnic organised by Food Not Bombs. Melbourne is turning 25 and, and that's going to be at 2pm until sunburn, uh, sunset at the Edinburgh Gardens near the corner of St. George Street and Rage Street, North Fitzroy. And then on Monday to Tuesday, um, November the 29th to November the 30th, there's going to be the Migrant Workers Conference 2021. And then on Monday, November the 29th, um, online forum, Fortress Europe Refugees and Britain's Border Bill at 6pm at on Monday, the November the 28th. And then 
Um, more importantly, on Wednesday, December the 1st, there's going to be the West Papua Morning Star flag raising at 5pm at the State Library. And then on Thursday, the 2nd of December, there's going to be a rally for all life and habitat at 5.30pm at the museum at Nicholson Street in Carlton. And then on Friday, December the 3rd, there's going to be protest casuals demand um, conversions and secure work. I think that's been organised by the University of Melbourne and um, 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 NTU branch. That's going to be happening 160 at the Avenue at Parkville. And then on Saturday, December the 1st to Saturday, December the 12th, there's going to be a radical book sale, 25% off all stock at the Resistance Centre, Liberal 5407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT. And then on Saturday, December the 4th, there's going to be a rally, Stop the Far Right, Take Back Melbourne Streets at 12 noon, 8-hour day monument at the corner of Russell and Victoria Street. And then on Sunday, um, the fu- um, December the 5th, there's going to be a Palestinian farm, um, fundraiser, um, farm lunch at 12.45pm at the Melbourne Food Hub to Wingrove Street in Alphington. And then on Tuesday, uh, Thursday, December the 7th, there's going to be an online forum, Young People Fight Poverty, being organised by Green Left and Sydney Socialist Alliance. And then on Friday, the 10th of December, there's going to be a rally, Human Rights, Not Another Military Pact, and that's going to be happening at 5.30pm at the State Library in Swanson Street. And yeah, I think that's... I think that's pretty much it in terms of kind of events. Um, yeah, like to, I think, get pre- unless there's any other things I'm missing, um, Ari? Not that I'm aware of, but I was just going to say people can go to, you know, greenleft.org.au and check the activist calendar there. And you can sign up to get it emailed to you frequently if you're interested in doing that. Actually, one quid, um, silly thing is I actually forgot to, I think I forgot to advertise the, um, the Green Left Performance Night. So tomorrow night, um, there's actually going to be um, a Green Left Performance mm. Night at the Maritime Union of Australia at um, 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. It's going to be a kind of night for cultural descent and it's going to be happening tomorrow. Um, performances start around 7pm-ish, but the doors gonna be, are going to be open from 6pm. And there's going to be a lineup of, you know, talent comedians um, from a range of social backgrounds, including Nikki Barry, Hell Child, Artie Vincent, Clinton Ginn, uh, Kroteka Halal, James Warren, um, Eddie Berger, um, Rowan, um, Rowan White, and Hamish Danks-Brown. And yeah, yeah, there's also going to be delicious meal and bar available, vegans are catered for, and yeah, you can book your tickets at shybooking.com forward slash B-V-F-O-M. And just to note, um, yeah, this is an event that's going to be fully um, will fully comply with all um, COVID re- regulations and you have to be fully vaccinated to attend. And if you want some more information, you can call 0458-9583 and 85. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, I might just... Um, the next thing I was going to play is I was actually going to play a pre-recording of a speech by our very own one of our presenters. He hasn't been presenting for a while because he's um, at work. Um, he's been working. Um, but Zane Alcorn actually gave a speech um, last Saturday at the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism protest, Stop the Far Right. And, yeah, that's... I think this is going to be a good... Uh, a, um, this, they, um, they, I've advertised the second sort of car protest, but, yeah, it's a good speech speech by Zane and um yeah hope lis- um, listeners kind of enjoy and it's basically about why we need to outmobilize the anti-vax right wing so um hope you enjoy my next speaker is Zane Zane is 
a construction worker and a member of the CFMEU. He is also a member of Socialist Alliance. He's been active in the anti-fascist movement for many, many years. So please make him feel welcome. Cheers, Nelly. I just want to uh, start by acknowledging that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Boon and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Pay respect to elders past, present and future and to the emergent new generation of staunch Koori activists who've been organising very vibrant Black Lives Matter protests and Invasion Day protests in this city in recent years. I've been asked to speak because I'm a, a rank and file member of the CFMEU and I just want to acknowledge those other CFMEU comrades who've taken the time to come down and support this rally today. I joined the CFMEU six years ago and I was excited to be part of this union that has its roots in the mighty BLF green bands of the 1970s. I was probably uh, a bit naive and thought I was literally joining the BLF. Um, I think it's fair to say that the CFMEU today is not quite the BLF of the 1970s, but that's a product of the wider political context with lower union density, a weaker left and more anti-union laws. We want to get back to how it was in the 70s with much more union density, with a much stronger left, and we want to get rid of anti-union laws. Even though the CFMEU of today might not be the BLF of the 70s, it's still a strong union that's been able to win decent improvements to pay and conditions in our industry, while pay in other industries has stagnated around the grossly inadequate minimum wage. The CFMEU is also effective at fighting for safety on construction sites, which requires ongoing vigilance because it's a dangerous industry. There is a strong grassroots culture of unionism and class consciousness in the CFMEU. And that makes our union a target for the right wing, whether it's the Liberal Party, the far right neo-Nazis, weird conspiracy anti-vaxxers. On September 20, those same idiots that are once again rallying at the state parliament today held a rally at our office. They attacked our office, smashing it up with bottles and rocks and cans of frozen coke. They violently assaulted elected union officials and staff. This sort of attempt to try and disrupt, attack and intimidate one of the strongest unions is absolutely disgraceful and unacceptable. It is straight from the far right playbook. Now I've had my disagreements with decisions my union has made. I won't go into those here today. But there are ways to raise those concerns. Talk to a delegate or organiser. Come to a branch meeting. What you don't do is have a tantrum and go and smash up the office and attack union staff and officials if you don't get your way. That's not how trade union debates and deliberation and democracy works. You don't try and win a political argument with violence and intimidation. This is absolutely unacceptable. There are valid concerns to be raised about the lockdowns, the lack of proper financial supports, the heavy-handedness with which lockdowns were implemented, the raid on Comrade Chris Breen, the growing militarisation of the police with new weapons being used against protesters. But that does not justify death threats and intimidation. The so-called freedom protesters have no alternative vision of how to keep people safe from COVID. Many of them don't even think COVID is real. They aren't calling for more funding for hospitals and better pay for healthcare workers. They just want to abolish all virus control measures and let it run wild. The far right have suddenly discovered this thing called civil liberties. 
but it was not the far right protesting against new bipartisan supported anti-terror laws over the past two decades. It was not the far right protesting against the apartheid rate at which Aboriginal people are jailed in this country. It is not the far right who have been fighting to free innocent refugees and asylum seekers from the indefinite detention in concentration camps, including that hotel up the road. It was not the far right protesting the Tiala lockdowns and providing mutual aid. It was us. Shame on those making death threats to democratically elected politicians and their family members, be they Labor Party politicians, Greens politicians, Animal Justice Party Senator Andy Medic or Reason Party Senator Fiona Patton or their families. Shame on those bringing gallows to Parliament and encouraging people to bring guns. Shame on those seeking to relativise the Holocaust by comparing safe, life-saving vaccination programs to forced medical procedures administered by the Nazis. Shame on the Murdoch media for its role in whipping up hysteria against Dictator Dan. Last time I checked, dictatorships don't allow constant saturation level hostile media coverage every day. They don't have democratic elections. They don't let hostile people protest in the street. What a ridiculous, what a ridiculous notion that this is some kind of dictatorship. Shame on those comparing proof of vaccination certificates to apartheid, as if you know anything about what it was like to live under apartheid. There is a vaccine apartheid, but the vaccine apartheid is about people in the global south not being able to access this life-saving vaccine because rich countries and corporations won't share the patents and won't provide vaccines for free as they should. Shame upon those who spat on and assaulted nurses at vaccine and testing clinics. And you know what? Shame on those who, despite all of this, continue to march alongside known neo-Nazis who march alongside those making threats, bringing the gallows and the crossbows, who continue to march alongside those who've attacked unionists and socialists and health workers, who refuse to call this despicable conduct out and who still try and claim this is an ordinary peaceful protest movement. It is not ordinary and it is clearly not peaceful. I want to briefly finish by mentioning an example from Italy of how we can respond to the far right and conspiracists. There was an attack on the head office of the Italian equivalent of the ACTU, the General Confederation of Italian Labour, or CGIL, on October 9 by the conspiracists and far right. There, and it followed from this attack here. They were following the attack on the CFMEU office. Well, we also need to learn from our comrades overseas who've responded to this in a powerful way. What was the response to the CGIL? A week later, on October 16, there was a massive mobilisation by all affiliated unions in Rome. It's estimated that 100,000 people turned up. That is how we can confront the conspiracists and far right and demoralise them. We know from recent rallies in the city, Black Lives Matter, women's marches, invasion day, union marches, climate strikes, that when our side wants to, we can mobilise far larger crowds than what these people have been putting on. Let's do that. I urge all unionists, all progressives, let's have a big united rally to push back against these bastards.
I want to finish with a message for the conspiracists. What you need to do is back off. Go home. Your attempts to use intimidation, threats and violence to try and force your views on your political opponents are absolutely unacceptable and will not be tolerated. Cheers, comrades. Thank you so much, Dean. Um... All right, so um, you're just listening to um, a speech by Zane Arcon, um, who was actually a presenter of Green Left Radio um, at the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism rally that actually took place on the 20th of November. And there's actually going to be uh, another protest actually happening um on, I think the... I want to say 5th of December. I think it was it? the 3rd of December or 4th. <laughs> yeah, um, it was a, it's a, the first Saturday, basically yeah, the yeah. First, Saturday first Saturday of December. Saturday. Um, so there's actually got some, just a few sort of things. And I thought I'd just close up with, I guess, a kind of few kind of comments. And um, I'll actually draw on... Um, an article actually that I had actually written uh, with um, Sue Bolton that's actually going to be appearing in the kind of paper, um, which is going to be appearing online kind of today. Now, I guess a few things, just a bit of a kind of an assessment of of this kind of political mo- movement. Now, I think in terms this kind of right-wing kind of freedom kind of movement is a very kind of worrying kind of development for the left. Um, and I think it does represent a challenge because right now we're currently in a situation where every Saturday there's a right-wing anti-vaccination protest or opposed to vaccine man, it's opposed to Daniel Andrews. I mean, it's opposed to a lot of different things at the, yeah. at the end of the day. That is literally more, um, that is out-mobilising the left, what the left is able to be capable of at this point. Now, the movement is actually seeking to kind of use conspiratorial ideas to essentially kind of forge this kind of coalition of libertarians, neo-Nazis, Trump supporters, anti-vaxxers, religious conservatives and other right-wingers in opposition to public health measures and COVID vaccines. Now, I guess this... The far right prior to this has been incredibly marginalised. Now, this is kind of like a breakthrough moment for them, um, similar to how, you know, if there was kind of like this mass movement um, that the left was able to have a big influence over, that would be probably a hopefully a breakthrough for us. <laughs> Unfortunately, that has that we haven't reached that. We haven't gotten that breakthrough yet. Mm. And I think it, there's no doubt that the far right is directly involving in organising the pro uh, movement. You know, I from what I kind of observed at the Melbourne kind of freedom protesters that kind of walked past me uh, on last Saturday, you know, it was kind of dominated by strange far-right messaging, including pro-Trump banners and and so on. And there was like anti-Semitic kind of stuff there. It was all very wacky. I mean, there were some... There were some strange sort of placards that kind of spoke to kind of the diversity of the kind of crowd. Mm. So I think there is, there is a sort of element, but basically, you know... The, 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 these um, there are some progressive kind of individuals that have been caught up into this move or people who consider themselves progressive. Now, they've been kind of caught up on this kind of basis on that it is anti-government or due to kind of opposition to vaccine mandates because there mm. are some left critiques of va- vaccine mandates that we, we, we should acknowledge. Um, and, of course, there has also been attempts um, to make the movement more appealing to progressive actors by having prominent Aboriginal activists speak at rallies. But, of course, the other sort of thing has been that people have sort of tried to point out that the the, the protests are kind of, you know, you know, the left needs to kind of support these protests because they're working class in composition. <laughs> now, 
as I sort of um, write here in this kind of article, it, it is kind of um, looks can be deceiving. Just because someone wears high vis doesn't necessarily make them a worker. Thirty years of neoliberal policies has actually seen many workers made redundant and forced to set up small businesses or become self-employed to survive. Now you also have to combine this in the context of the decline in unionization rates. And this has actually led to a whittling away of social solidarity among workers and it's kind of a replacement with a more individualistic conscience. Because I guess when you think about it, it's really a, a, a challenge for the global kind of capitalist system, especially within capitalist countries within the global north. The fact that the capitalist state cannot convince the of the 100% of the population to take a life-saving medical mm. medicine that is given for free <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, the fact that there is even opposition to vaccination, like that I think reflects a, a very disturbing trend with a lot of global ca- um, capitalist kind of countries. Mm. There's clearly a, di- a, a increasing distrust of political institutions. And of course, obviously we always had the existence of the, you know, anti-vaccine movement, which is always sort of mired in conspiratorial kind of thinking. But, you know, you know, prior to that, prior to this pandemic, that sort of thing has always just been this sort of marginal kind of fringe element of society. It's always just been something, oh, it exists, but not really something that makes... Mm. It's always just been something that exists, nothing more. Yeah, and it hasn't been so sort of almost universally right-wing either. Because, like, there's a lot of anti-vaccine sentiment among sort of the new age hippie sort of areas, the kind of natural the quote-unquote natural medicine type of people who like natural medicine means crystals and whatnot because you know it's all industrial poisons or whatever but one of the things that for example QAnon has been very successful in has been recruiting the new age and what would not necessarily left left but more left-leaning sort of new age and hippie sort of communities to this very distinctly right-wing conspiracism Mm. And I think, yeah, there's like, I think, yeah, that's sort of where I kind of disagree. I mean, this is my personal opinion. It's not in the article um, that I'm sort of drawing from. But, you know, this is where I think it's not completely useful for the left to kind of continuously kind of insist that, oh, well, um, I don't think it's necessarily useful to just say, all these protesters at the Melbourne Freedom protesters are all far right. Mm. And I also don't think it's it's not necessarily a completely consistent left-wing position uh, or maybe consistent with a kind of material kind of analysis of the situation to kind of say that, oh, well, I mean, I, I have a lot of problems with New Age um, hippieism yeah. and all, at the end of the day, I have a lot of criticisms of it. I'm, it's definitely not something I necessarily support, but I don't mm. really think, I'm not convinced that it's sort of like, it's not inherently some kind of pipeline to yeah. far-right sort of ideas. Um, right now, in this current context, mm. it kind of is, but it's not. it hasn't always been so. And I think, you know, we actually yeah. have to look at the history of a lot of mass movements in history. Um, a lot of mass movements in history, especially the anti-war movement, you know, has always... There's always been strange conspiratorial ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, the thing is, I mean, probably the difference between some of those mass movements and... Um, and this movement currently is the conspiracism is actually the centre point, whereas in a lot yeah. of mass movements, um, you know, the conspiracism is sort of in the background, but it's still there. And 
yeah, mean, yeah. and it's and it's and it's like you can't have we can't obviously we don't have this approach as left wing activists that we want to exclude. Uh, you know, if, if people are prepared to support action on climate, yeah. I don't really care if you believe that nine eleven is an inside job. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to exclude you on on that basis. I, I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to endorse your viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to agree with it. But you know, if you're going to come, if you're going to come and stand up in support of workers' rights and and um and among other things, you know your wacky kind of belief on conspiracyism is not necessarily should be a kind of a barrier necessarily. Yeah. And I think that's a, a very good point and a clarification is because I agree that like we shouldn't necessarily say like, yeah, not all new age people are susceptible to far right conspiracism. And like, but it is also a very salient point that the difference with the anti-vaccine, the kind of quote unquote anti-government, the freedom quote-unquote freedom movement is that it is essentially conspiracist whereas a lot of movements have conspiracists in them but aren't necessarily essentially conspiracist like the the quote-unquote freedom movement is <clears throat> which like also to the point of like capitalist countries being unable to get people to accept free life-saving medicine one of the things that is always that is quite interesting about the quote-unquote freedom movement is that the reason it's called that is because of the growing individualism under neoliberalism like what you were saying Mm. so all these people like how dare the government tell me what to do or how dare the government kind of exist in a way that like actually interferes with my life and like it's not universally about privilege obviously because there are a lot of material problems that have been caused by the lockdowns especially with the federal government response but that whole like quote-unquote freedom that's kind of freedom from government interference right which includes like governments doing useful things like providing free vaccines for a deadly worldwide pandemic yeah um we're running out of time actually but i guess the kind of last kind of point is really um you know they get it we're gonna um this is a big this movement represents a big challenge for the left and you know we need to be you know we need to build a serious kind of left opposition to it but Mm. also not just we can't it's not just enough to just counter protest this movement or just say we're against these ideas we actually need to be involving ourselves in rebuilding campaigns around the climate, workers' rights, and uh, and other kind of social justice issues, because that is going to be what what's ultimately going to defeat this sort of move. Because clearly there's, you know, probably people with very confused politics, mm. incoherent. They might have, they have a, possibly a certain anger at, at society, and they're just getting drawn into another, their incoherenceness are uh, being drawn into a clearly very right-wing movement um, mm. that I think, yeah, has to be opposed and has nothing left-wing or progressive about it. And we're going to have to end it um, here. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and thanks all our listeners for listening in. Thanks for listening. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 634 206 Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.